Hello, it's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 21, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. That's because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. I mentioned in last week's podcast that I had recorded the program on Thursday, but I didn't say why. I didn't say why, because I was actually out of town on Sunday, and that didn't seem like a good thing to mention. Gee, the house is unoccupied. Anyway, I was in Pittsburgh photographing the wedding of my older daughter's best friend. And of course, knowing that if anything can possibly go wrong, it will, and even if nothing can possibly go wrong, it still will find some way to go wrong, I did everything I could to safeguard the images. I shot them all in raw mode to get the best possible quality for each image. That meant that every picture I took was 6 to 10 megabytes in size. After the reception, I copied all of the images to my notebook computer's hard disk. And then before we left Pittsburgh, I burned a couple of DVDs as backup. And to back up the backup, I copied all of the pictures off onto a pocket full of thumb drives. When I got home, I copied all of the images to the desktop computer's hard drive, then made an image of that directory on the external drive that I normally keep at the office. Then, and only then, I could format the camera's memory cards and the thumb drives. I still have copies of the originals on DVD. The images were on another backup drive by midweek, and all of the files will eventually be stored as part of my online backup at Carbonite. Clearly, these are pictures that I didn't want to lose, but you don't want to lose anything you've stored. Otherwise, you wouldn't have stored it. Stored in as many locations as they are, the wedding pictures consume about 30 gigabytes of disk space so far. As I edit them, the images will get larger. Right now, they take up 6 gigabytes on the desktop system, 6 gigabytes on each of the two backup drives that are here in town, 6 gigabytes on DVDs, and 6 gigabytes on a carbonite drive somewhere. Now, in the mid-1980s, That kind of storage would have cost about $3 million. Today I can buy a 500 gigabyte external hard drive for less than $125. That would be enough to store more than 16 weddings worth of photos at 30 gigabytes per wedding. So in mid-80s terms, I have about $50 million worth of disk storage space in a single drive I can hold in my hand. The old saying says a picture is worth a thousand words. If so, what is a word worth? Maybe the word is worth more if it's part of a business plan or it's part of your high school sophomore's term paper for history. Either way, you wouldn't want to lose that word or all of the words surrounding it. In the old days, it didn't matter what happened to pictures. As long as we had the negatives, you could always just have another print made, at least if you kept the negatives. Some people, I know, throughout the negatives. That struck me as incredibly short-sighted. Today, most of us look at photos on screen. And to Kodak's chagrin, we don't have prints made. That makes for an interesting challenge, because now if you lose the data on the hard drive, you have effectively lost both the pictures, what you view, and the negatives, what you would use to create new pictures. That's 
just one reason why it's so important to have everything backed up. So, at the very least, and if it sounds like I'm Johnny OneNote as far as backup is concerned, that's okay with me, you should be sure that you have at least two copies of any photograph before you delete the files from your camera's memory card. One of those copies should be in another building. DVDs that you create and then store in a bank safe deposit box, for example, or maybe take to the office, or give to a relative for safekeeping. Those are all good choices. So is an external hard drive if you keep it in a safe location, not in the same building with the computer, and maybe an online backup service, such as Carbonite. This should be an interesting week for Apple users. The next version of Apple's operating system, OS X, 10.5, also known as Leopard, will be available sometime this week. Although this version is more evolutionary than revolutionary, Apple's marketing honchos still point to some 300 enhancements that will accompany this cat. Apple calls Time Machine, for example, a giant leap backward. It's a quick and easy backup system. Backups can be complicated because people often don't understand the differences between operating system files, program files, data files, and hidden files. They don't understand the difference between a full backup, a differential backup, and an incremental backup, or cloning the disk, for that matter. Well, Time Machine makes everything simple. Maybe just a little too simple. The backup system lacks granularity. And by that, I mean it's kind of a complicated way of saying that your choices are all or nothing. Maybe you want to back up the photos from your niece's wedding, from last year's family reunion, and your son's high school graduation, but you don't particularly want to back up some test pictures you made of the cats. You don't want to back up audio files you created from CDs that you own, because you can just recreate those should something happen to them. And maybe you don't want to back up files that you brought home from the office to work on and then took back to the office. You don't need them at home anymore. Well, if you want that kind of functionality... Time Machine won't do it. But for a lot of people, Time Machine will make possible a real backup for the very first time because all you need to do to use it is buy an external drive, 80, 90, 100, 120 bucks, plug it in, allow Leopard to find it, and tell Leopard that you'd like to use it as a backup drive. Can't get any easier than that. And then there's Boot Camp. The Apple function that allows you to run Windows on the Mac operating system on your Intel-powered Mac. It's been improved. If you install Windows on the Mac, you will be able to read and write Windows files as long as you format the Windows partition as a FAT32 drive. Boot Camp can read FAT32 drives, but it is still incapable of reading an NTFS-formatted volume. NTFS is certainly the better choice for Windows, but... If you have a Mac and you've loaded Windows on it, chances are your primary operating system isn't Windows. You just have it there because you need the occasional Windows program. Your normal operating system is undoubtedly OS X. So the fact that Boot Camp can only deal with FAT32 drives, eh, probably not that big a deal. If you use your Mac to watch DVDs, you'll like the new and improved screen interface and some improvements in the player technology. It can actually recover the program from some damaged DVDs, depends on how badly they're damaged, so that the show will go on, even if there's a problem with the disc. So it should be a pretty interesting week for Mac users. 
Uh, keep your iPhone, if you bought one, out of your mouth. And maybe you should keep it away from your face. Greenpeace says some scientific tests show that Apple's iPhones contain hazardous chemicals, some of which are no longer used by other mobile phone makers. All of this despite a claim by Steve Jobs that Apple is ahead of, or soon will be ahead of, most of our competitors on environmental issues. The Environmental Action Group bought one of the phones, sent it to a research laboratory in the U.K., and the results really weren't very good. The independent laboratory tested 18 internal and external components and confirmed the presence of a variety of toxic chemicals that probably shouldn't be near your mouth. Greenpeace says that Steve Jobs has missed the call on making the iPhone his first step toward the greening of Apple's products. And Greenpeace notes that Nokia sells mobile phones free of some of the worst chemicals. If you want to see how they took the phone apart, there's a slideshow you can see. There's a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. takes you to the Greenpeace website where they'll show you how they disassembled the phone. Greenpeace found that the battery was both glued and soldered into the handset, which hinders battery replacement, certainly makes it less of a do-it-yourself thing. And it makes the separation of the battery for recycling or other appropriate disposal more difficult. The organization claims that Nokia, Motorola, and Sony Ericsson sell phones with fewer unsafe chemicals and that both Nokia and Sony Ericsson have better take-back policies for recycling and that those firms accept responsibility for reuse and recycling of the phones, unlike Apple. If you want to read the full report, there's a link to that from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a PDF document called Missed Call, the iPhone's Hazardous Chemicals. It's by Greenpeace. Two for one this week. Two for one. Two for one on the stupid spam of the week. Within minutes of each other, I received two spams that encouraged me to apply for honest work with a real company and promised that no investment was required. Both of these firms wanted to pay me a lot of money for doing very little. Now, you'll probably question my intelligence, but I passed up both of those offers. One came with the subject line, Become employed today in a respectable international company and reach the financial success. No investment required. The other one was a little more straightforward. Serious jobs for serious people. No investment required. The messages inside were identical. They told me that they were a big international commercial organization and they're looking for talented, honest, reliable representatives from different regions. The ideal candidate, they said, would be an intelligent person. Someone who can work autonomously with a high degree of enthusiasm. We're looking for highly motivated professionals with experience in the marketing field. The position is home-based and it has flexible working hours. And they'd be happy to consider a full-time job share candidate. If I want to apply, all I have to provide is my full name, a phone number, and whether I want part-time or full-time work. I don't need to invest any sum of money, and they don't ask me for my bank account information, or as they put it, requisites. So, how could this go wrong? Well, these offers certainly are scams. They must be. People don't get paid for doing nothing. So, what kind of scam it is isn't exactly clear, but a website called Bankrate.com has some information suggesting that this might be a re-shipper scam. The FBI says it's a fairly common scam that makes the victim an unwitting accomplice 
to a crime. Nice. It starts this way. You will eventually be directed to an elaborate, official-looking website for the bogus company. When you get there, you'll fill out an employment application. Now, what does an employment application ask for? Well, it wants your social security number, your date of birth, a bunch of other information that you would give an employer. After a short delay, you're hired. Now, the spams I received didn't include any website links, but it did include an email address where I could contact the prospective employer. It was a Gmail address. How many real businesses do you know have human resources departments that use Gmail for recruiting? Well, that aside, once you're hired, you receive packages that you are told to repackage and ship overseas. You have to use your own money to ship them, of course, but the company does promise to reimburse you. The packages typically will come from Internet-based firms, and the contents will have been purchased using stolen credit card numbers. So, now you have received stolen merchandise, and you've shipped it overseas. That's not bad enough. To add insult to injury, you'll receive your reimbursement by means of a check for more than what you spent. You spend a hundred dollars, they'll send you two hundred. You'll be instructed to deposit the check and send the excess to the overseas bank account of your employer. That seems fair enough. Problem is, a week or two after that, the bank's going to report that the cashier's check was a forgery. So now you're out whatever you spent to send the stolen goods, say a hundred dollars. And the difference between what you got paid and what you had to send, another hundred dollars. So you're a criminal and you're out two hundred dollars to boot. Hey, that's great. Uh, but wait, just like the Jinsu knife commercials, there's more. Your employer has your name, your address, your birth date, your social security number, and all the other important information that it needs to get a credit card in your name. So soon you're going to have several new credit cards that will have been used fraudulently to buy merchandise shipped to the next generation of fools who bought into the scam. <sighs> the only people who get caught up in schemes like these are the greedy folks who think they're going to get something for nothing. They won't. And I really can't feel too terribly sorry for them. In nerdly news, the latest in pump-and-dump stock schemes is the MP3 trick. Creeps who buy penny stocks then send official-looking tips aimed at convincing suckers to buy the stocks based on the assumption that the price will go up. Have a new trick. Instead of sending their spams in plain text, that's pretty old, or as an attached GIF, eh, that's old, or as attached PDFs, eh, they've largely given up on that, now they're using attached MP3 files. So you might think somebody sent you a music track, but it's really a spam that uses a computer-generated voice, usually not very well recorded, to pump a stock. These schemes work really well for the scam artist. As soon as the price starts to go up, they dump the stock they bought for a penny on the schmo who's willing to pay 10 pennies. So you buy it at 10 cents, expecting it to go to 50 cents. It actually goes to zero. Suckers buy the stock, the spammers sell what they have, the price drops back right to where it was, or often lower. So the recording says, hello, this is an investor alert. 
It then describes a stock you've never heard of for a company that has supposedly just reinvented the wheel or maybe come up with a new version of sliced bread. The company's future is bright, of course, and the stock is about to explode. Now, many of these messages probably won't make it through to corporate addresses. A lot of companies already stop messages that contain MP3s because those files are frequently music files that could create legal problems for the company. So stock-pumping MP3s are going to be caught in that snare. Pump-and-dump stock schemes, by the way, account for about a quarter of all the spam. And speaking of stock, if only I had bought Google when it was under $100 a share. Or maybe not. I've learned that the best way I can kill a stock is to buy some of it. Twenty years ago this week, I was midway through a two-week stay in Manhattan. Black Monday was the result. The stock market crashed. So far, I haven't bought any Google stock, and the company continues to fly very, very high. Google beat expectations this week in reporting quarterly profits that were 13 cents more per share than Wall Street expected. Even though in the past quarter, Google hired more people than at any time in its short existence as a public company. It has been a good week for Silicon Valley companies. Yahoo, eBay, Intel, Seagate, and Genentech all had good news for investors this week. Google's chief financial officer, who plans to retire this year, George Rise, says that the company benefited from improvements made in the quality of ads it shows to users of the Google search engine. Net income increased 46%, and a share of Google stock returned $3.38 to investors. Google stock closed at $639.62 on Thursday. That's up about 39% from the beginning of the year, or more than 600% since the company went public. The company's added more than 2,000 employees this quarter. Chief Executive Eric Schmidt says the large number of new hires was the result of college graduations. 300 new employees came from Google's acquisition of Postini. Maybe I should check with Google and offer not to buy any stock if they just pay me a little money. Hey, thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of October 21st, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you'd like, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.